The Spin-Off Podcast Network. When the Facts Change is brought to you by the Spin-Off Podcast Network in partnership with Kiwi Bank. The bank for Kiwi looking to get ahead in business and in life. A bank that delivers expertise and banking know-how, smart advice for business owners wanting to invest, grow their business or diversify. A bank that adapts with technology through the lens of its people and customers. It is a bank with heart that is driven by its purpose. Kiwi making Kiwi better off. This week on When the Facts Change, I want to talk about something amazingly scary and brilliant, depending on who you are. If you own a home in, let's say, Auckland or Wellington, you'll know that the median house price is around about a million dollars now, which is fantastic if you own, awful if you don't. But just imagine if that price went almost overnight from $1 million to $2 million. Is that possible? Could that actually happen? What we're going to do today on When the Facts Change is explain to you how it could and how the Reserve Bank and the government are doing things, particularly in the next couple of weeks, to ensure that it doesn't. But to do that, I'm going to have to step back and explain to you how banks work and perhaps bust a few myths out there about how money is created, where it comes from, and how banks operate. A lot of people think banks you know, have money in a vault and you give them the money and then they lend it out. And if you need to go and get the money back, you can turn up and do that. People perhaps have a sense that if everyone turned up at the same time, they couldn't all get their money back at the same time because some of it's lent out. And that is the guts of what they call fractional reserve banking, where a bank will have a certain amount of money put aside so it can deal with people turning up and wanting it back, but also have a certain amount of its own money to deal with a loss if someone can't afford to pay back the mortgage. Essentially, banks, with our fractional reserve banking system and the fact that we no longer connect our money with gold, means that If we didn't control banks, they could really go nuts and lend lots of money because, in effect, private banks and, in some cases, central banks are the ones who create money. And these days, they don't have to go and mine gold for it. They can just invent it on a spreadsheet. It's great. The reason they can't just go completely nuts and invent enormous amounts of sums and loans is because they are controlled by a central bank telling them how much capital to put aside. Because it's sensible, of course, to have a certain amount of capital put aside so that you don't go bust every 10 or 20 years, which actually was the history of banking up until, actually, uh, up until the 1930s or so, where we had these banking crises that wrecked the American and British and European economies. Every 10 or 20 years, there was a crisis. Until regulators were put in place and banks were told how much capital they need to have. And, of course, the more of their own capital they have, the less risky they are. And one of the fascinating things about the development of this banking system we have is that central banks have, over time, waxed and waned about how much capital should be there. And for a time, we thought, we'll just let them go for it. And that's when we saw Lehman Brothers have just 3% capital. It was able to leverage that up 33 times and as well as some other banks, uh, was able to create effectively the conditions for the global financial crisis. It it collapsed, and we saw another toughening of bank regulations. Now, just coming back to New Zealand, where our banks have been reasonably well regulated and have a reasonable amount of capital, um, but it's not a huge amount of capital that are required to have. 
Uh, it's around. It was around about eight percent. It's being increased progressively over the coming years to closer to 16, 20%. And that is really important. The reason being that at the moment, if there were no limits, if all of the restrictions were taken off, then the banks could really go for it. And how do we know that? Because the restrictions were taken off in May last year during the midst of the COVID crisis, and they went, well, not quite nuts, but they certainly went Woof, let's go. And so an extra billion dollars worth of lending went into the housing market. And what did we see? A 20% rise in house prices overnight. A lot of people say, well, that couldn't happen again because we've, we're right up, got so much debt up to our eyeballs in debt, we couldn't afford any more. But here's the guts of it. Yes, we could actually afford an awful lot more debt. Just to step back, New Zealand's housing market is worth about $1.5 trillion. So that's $1,500 billion. And we have about $300 billion worth of loans against that. So essentially a 20% loan-to-value ratio. Now, at the moment, a lot of people who are buying their first home or a rental property investor could easily go up to a 60 or 70% loan-to-value ratio. And so could the entire New Zealand housing market. Because interest rates are so low, people are currently paying less than 6% of their disposable income on servicing their mortgage. Hardly anything. For a lot of people who are renting, they're paying more than 50, sometimes 60% of their disposable income on rent. That's not the case for people who are owning homes. They have lots of equity, particularly if they've been in the market for a long time. And generally, they're not paying a huge amount of their income in mortgage costs because interest rates are so low. If it was doubled from 6% to 12%, even overnight or over a period of a couple of years, you would still be below the level of uh, mortgage pain that we saw in 2007, 2008, when the economy certainly wasn't in a mess. Now, you'd argue that's, that's unlikely and the banks would be unwise to do it, but they could, and New Zealand's homeowners could afford it. And that's why in the next week, we're going to see the Reserve Bank come out with recommendations or at least discussion about how they're going to tighten the screws a bit on the banks, particularly around interest-only lending, and uh, look to introduce more controls to essentially stop the banks from really using that power to further blow up asset values. And we're going to see also the government get a bit more involved in making sure those banks don't really go for it. Because they've realised, belatedly in my view, that our banks could be dangerous and could collapse. And if they did, it would be the government that would have to step in and help them. So this week, we'll dive deeper into how those controls might affect the housing market, what happens next, and how low those interest rates will go and stay, and what it means for our economy and our housing market generally. Welcome now to Carmen Vichelich, who is the founder and CEO of Velocity Global. Carmen, could you tell us how it is you know so much about what's happening in the mortgage market, how the banks lend to people who are investing in it, and you know what, what you do? 
Sure. Thanks, Bernard. Thanks for having me. Um, so philosoph- every bank in the world has to validate the value of a property before they can lend money on it. And Velocity helps them do this through our data and our technology and our platform. So what we do is we help the bank um, understand the market uh, and we run analytics across every single property in the country and we amalgamate a series of data to do that. And we also connect them with a nationwide valuation platform. So 90% um, of lenders ordering full valuations come through the Velocity platform in New Zealand. And so what have you seen since the government's announcement about tax deductibility for rental property investors in terms of demand for mortgages, how the banks are lending, that sort of thing? Well, we certainly saw an immediate slowdown in volumes, um, you know, on the first week or two post the announcement. I guess, you know, although... Um, one of the macro things happening at the same time was Easter. And so that could have had an effect. And what we've seen now is um, the market seems to have settled back to normal and we're seeing the same volumes that we had pre-Easter and pre the announcement coming back. And so I think it's a little bit early to tell, especially in terms of the composition between investors versus first-home buyers. Um, But that initial slowdown, which could have been to Easter, could have been um, investors checking with their accountants as to what this means, um, seems to have settled down back to normal volumes again. So tell us why it is that banks are so keen to lend to people who are buying properties, because they could lend to other people, people building businesses um, or people on farms. Why is it that property uh, is is so attractive for the banks? Um, I think, well, they do lend to businesses and to agri, and, and you know, most of them lend across the board, across the different verticals. But it's really, um, the Kiwis, you know, New Zealanders have a love affair with owning your own property and the white packet fence. Um, and then we've also seen that historically, um, property retains its value and is certainly one of the assets that um, continues to grow over time um, historically. And so Kiwis certainly have a love affair with property and there's many Kiwis that have got one or two properties, certainly their home in their batch or a home in an investment property that they're seeing as their future nest egg for retirement. And so, you know, this is the core component of what banks provide. And um, and I guess that's where they're really, you know, happy to service this because it's a, a really low risk asset over time as long as they manage it with the appropriate um, policies. So it's interesting to look at this issue of risk and capital. So when a bank thinks about lending a, a sum of money to someone, they obviously look to uh, make sure that they can get their money back if there's some problem. And a mortgage uh, literally, you know, puts a big old, slaps a big sticker on that piece of land or that house, or maybe it's a business, uh, or a flow of income to a business, which means that they can get their money back. Why is it that over time, banks have worked out that lending to housing in New Zealand is relatively less risky than lending to other types of loans, and therefore they don't have to put so much capital aside. Well, it depends on how much they're lending in your deposit. So they still, um, the capital provisioning requirements um, that are demanded by the regulators are still pretty significant. And New Zealand has, you know, one of the best banking systems in the world in terms of best practice. And we saw this in 2008 when we had the global financial crisis that um, our market, um, so, you know, didn't have a significant drop in banking. And particularly the property market was incredibly elastic and property values came back really, really fast. And I guess 
that's what enables them um, to do that lending. But at the same time, they have to make sure um, the person can pay back the loan uh, and under responsible lending, make sure that the person you know, is understanding what, what would happen if interest rates increased. And they also at the same time have to look at the risk of the property and say, if it does for some reason um, have to be a forced sale, will the bank recover that money that they've lent on it? Um, and that's where you know there's some properties that have high more risk than others um, and that affects their lending policy and it also affects the type of valuation that they'll use and how much money they can lend on that property. So give us an idea of how many mortgagee sales go through the market and and also the differences between New Zealand and say parts of America where uh, the banks you know don't necessarily own your uh, uh, wage flows or your salary flows um, if if you th- there's a problem and some people in some states can literally mail the keys back to the bank and say okay I don't have to pay the loan anymore yeah no it's very very different here and that's where we don't really see um, mortgagee sales so it's um, certainly not something that's very common and even in the GFC I think the volumes only got up to around 300 or something you know in contrast to the total number of properties that we have in New Zealand 1.5 1.6 million residential properties, significantly low. And um, it's because of our robust property market that, um, you know, if you think of a property that's been forced to sell in Sandringham or um, somewhere in Auckland, there's always going to be another ma and pa or first home buyer that's going to be happy to buy that property at market rate. So we don't see that same risk because um, it's not in people's interest to walk away. Uh, And also the banks here very much will work with, um, you know, trying to support somebody through a period with a mortgage holiday um, and, you know, with their delinquency processes to try and avoid that. So that's where it's definitely an exception and not a norm in New Zealand. And I guess that's why um, Kiwis love to invest in property because uh, it does retain its value over time and it does grow. So, um, you know, we've seen the significant capital gains in the market year on year and, um, you know, incredibly significant. And as long as you've got a, a supply and demand issue where more people are wanting to buy a property than there are stock, um, you're going to continue to see property values increasing. So over the last year, we've seen what happens when the controls on lending are taken off. In uh, in May last year, the Reserve Bank removed the loan-to-value ratio restrictions for a time. And so the banks w- didn't have the same restrictions on how much they could lend to investors or to first-home buyers. And we saw about a billion dollars extra per month lent to rental property investors, and that was part of the reason for the rise in in house prices. And uh, we've seen the Reserve Bank slap those controls back on, uh, essentially from November last year. Um, One thing I'm I'm curious about is if those controls weren't there at all, and if the uh, Reserve Bank wasn't changing the capital requirements, could the banks in theory, you know, lend a lot more to uh, to people because there's now an awful lot of equity in the market and because interest rates are so low, people can actually afford to borrow quite a lot. Um, that's definitely true. And I think it's important to note that our increase um, in, in the property market over the last 12 months um, is also a global trend and it's not something unique just to New Zealand. So we work in Australia and we're seeing record volumes there and property value increases. Um, we work with partners in the ASEAN region and they're having record um, numbers in the UK and the US. So this is very much a global trend that people haven't been able to travel. Many of them have been stuck in 
in their homes and so they're thinking about doing that DIY and reinvesting in their homes or um, having the time to look at the market and, and do all those things because they're not going on overseas holidays. And then you combine that with the demographics of the baby boomers that have significant equity in their properties um, and that are wanting to actually invest. And um, so I think it's a combination of all of those things. But certainly um, without restrictions, yes, banks could, could lend more definitely. So the Reserve Bank has restricted uh, the amount of loans that people can take against the value of their property to 60% for rental property investors, and uh, this has restricted the amount that they can borrow. However, there is also another restriction, which not a lot of people talk about, which is the way that the banks themselves uh, make sure that they're being responsible when they lend, uh, when they look at how much uh, someone can afford if interest rates were to go up. And my understanding is that currently the banks use a serviceability threshold of around 6 to 6.5%, which says that um, if, if you're borrowing, you need to be able to afford to pay that loan if interest rates were ro- to rise to 6, 6.5% from currently, you know, 25 3% for most people. I mean, if the banks were to change their view on what that long-term serviceability threshold would be, would you expect you know people to be able to borrow a lot more, and that the the banks would look to lend a lot more? Um, yes, they would, but I guess you know it's on the bank um, that they have to look at not just the short term, and they have to look at the length of your mortgage, and that's why um, certainly for stress testing they have to also run the feasibility of what happens if interest rates go up because they are at record lows. So they would always look at um, the length of the mortgage and your ability to service that loan if interest rates increase, and I guess that's where we're seeing with the new um, news around the government changes that. Um, the, as the interest is no longer tax deductible, the impact is the equivalent to moving the interest rate from 2.29% to around 3.4%. Um, that's assuming a 33% tax rate. So already you can see, um, you know, looking at um, a standard home and the rent around that, um, you know, what is that going to mean long term? Um, and, you know, definitely that there's going to be an impact. You've done some analysis into you know, what this would mean for um, investors who own a particular property in terms of, you know, how much extra they'd have to get in returns from a property to to get the same sort of return that they were before the big announcement on tax deductibility. What sort of numbers per week um, would investors have to get back, let's say, in higher rents or higher capital gains to to be, you know, uh, back where they were pre-March 23rd? I mean, if we take um, a three-bedroom house, um, before the announcement, all regions were cash positive prior to the tax changes. Um, but now we're seeing, particularly in Auckland and in Wellington, um, that they're cash negative and there will be requirement of a top-up from the investor or an increase in rent. So Auckland City, um, the cash flow um, you know, per week pre-rule change was around $38. That's now um, less than down 161 and that's the most um, affected, whereas um, North Shore goes down about $113 a week. So, um, you know, we are going to see that you know, either 
people are going to hold onto their property for longer for capital gain. And I guess the good news is um, the market hasn't stopped. It, it doesn't need to increase too significantly to soak up the cost of the additional tax through capital gain. Um, or I guess we're going to see you know people actually um, holding off, um, looking at uh, yield and looking for where should they buy, which has got capital gain, which is more likely outside of Auckland and outside of Wellington, uh, or obviously um, new builds. Now, the Reserve Bank will hold its financial stability um, report announcement um, this coming week, and one of the suggestions that they would limit interest-only loans to landlords and potentially propose some sort of limit on debt-to-income multiples, maybe five or six. If there was to be um, a restriction on interest-only lending and potentially on uh, debt-to-income multiples, particularly for, for rental property investors, what sort of impact could that have on potential lending volumes? Well, um, it's really hard to say because um, I think, you know, when we look at most of the people that are buying investment properties, it's not actually overseas investors. Um, it's not huge big um, groups. The majority of property investors are mom, pa, um, you know, mid- middle-aged New Zealanders that have got significant equity in their property and are wanting to use that. So I don't expect there to be a significant drop because most people are leveraging that equity and um, won't be a 0%. Um, I don't think there's many of the top tier lenders that are doing a large portion of lending in that anyway. Um, And I think it's important to note the banks also, while they follow the regulators' um, requirements, they also self-regulate themselves with best practice. And we saw that in the loan-to-value ratios for investors that they actually changed their policies ahead of what the regulator was, um, you know, putting in place to manage that. Fantastic. Um, Carmen Vitsulich there from Velocity. I really appreciate your time. Awesome. Thanks for having me. Bye-bye. We'll be right back with Jared Kerr. When the Facts Change is brought to you in partnership with KiwiBank to help you understand the issues affecting the economy. And that's what their team of experts is here to do too. Here's KiwiBank's Chief Economist Jared Kerr with his prediction on what we can expect from the housing market and interest rates for 2024. We've seen quite a correction in housing across the country. So house prices fell from the lofty levels that we saw in 2021. The Reserve Bank has pushed house prices down by design and by lifting interest rates to very eye-watering levels. I think the housing market has found a bottom and I think we'll see house prices rising over 2024 and into 25, 26. The housing market will be better balanced. We have seen a, a surge in migrants, which is adding demand to the housing market. And I think we'll see house prices naturally lift on the back of that surge in migration and uh, hopefully an easing in interest rates later on. Visit kiwibank.co.nz to stay up to date with detailed economic analysis and forecasts from Jared and other KiwiBank experts. They take big issues from both here and overseas and make them relevant to Kiwi businesses. Raising capital or taking your business to the world? Investment Fix has the lowdown on everything you need to make it happen. This season, we're exploring the US market, the opportunities it offers, what it takes to grow a business there, and the best way to approach investors. Join some of the superstars of the investment and business world as they share advice from their time in the US so you can make your mahi count in this massive market. The Investment Fix Podcast, brought to you by Invest New Zealand. Tune in today. Ready to rediscover the joys of cycling? 
With over 300 kilometers of cycle paths across Tamaki Makoto, jumping on your bike and going for a ride is such a fun way to discover the city from a different perspective. Cycling is getting more and more popular across Auckland, so now's a great time to join the hype and give cycling a go. Head to at.govt forward slash cycling to find your nearest cycleway today. Welcome, Jared Kerr, the Chief Economist at Kiwi Bank, to the spin-off for When the Facts Change. And fantastic to have you in the studio in Auckland. Tell me, what facts have changed since we last spoke, particularly around housing and how the market's going after the government's big March 23 announcement on tax deductibility? Yeah, you're right. That was a pretty big announcement, and it took quite a few people uh, by surprise, uh, especially investors in the market. And the anecdotes that we've heard so far are a little mixed, um, but we've, we've definitely heard that investors have, I think, taken some time to reflect and, and maybe paused and, and stepped back. Uh, there's a little less activity uh, from the investor side, but activity from first home buyers and, and normal owner occupiers is still pretty strong. So we certainly haven't fallen off a cliff. It just looks like we're, we're having a bit of a pause uh, to reflect here for that investor community. Um, but then in talking to developers, I've actually got quite positive feedback. You see, they believe that when they develop a new property and the government's trying to nudge uh, investors into new builds, they're going to find themselves with an army of investors behind them wanting to get into new builds. And that can actually help uh, help them a lot. So there is a silver lining. Um, this is very much a, um, another hurdle or another few hurdles for investors to jump through. But there is a, a silver lining here, and it, and it is the fact that government is clearly trying to nudge investors into new builds and, and trying to help stimulate demand for new supply, which is good rather than just we're all chasing existing uh, dwellings. So how do the banks generally think about these new builds, you know, buying off the plan? Uh, um, are they as comfortable? Is it slightly riskier for the banks to lend to either an investor or a first home buyer who says, who rocks up and says, hey, I got this great brochure that says I can buy this um, <laughs> apartment in this development. Um, can you lend me some money for the deposit and then guarantee me you'll give me the money when the house is built? Look, it's still very low risk, but but there is you know slightly more uh, risk associated with you know a building that that hasn't actually been completed, and and there may be some some problems along the way, and it might not get completed, or investors might pull out, or there, there could be a few problems. Uh, you know, at least with an existing dwelling, you can go and kick the brick on the side and 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 uh, figure out exactly what state it's in, um, where it's a bit harder to imagine uh, just looking at plans. But, um, you know, it's still very low risk uh, lending from a bank's point of view, provided, you know, it goes ahead and you get that valuable uh, certificate of completion at the end. And as you've um, looked at the numbers for supply going into the market over the last few weeks, 
that risk about you know overbuilding about um, in a few years' time suddenly having this swathe of um, apartments and townhouses coming onto the market and there being you know too much supply. What are you seeing out there in terms of the supply demand imbalance and whether we're going to overbuild? Some people fear. Oh look, I've, we've seen a fantastic shift in the last year. Um, you know, I moved back to New Zealand in 2018 and I left Sydney and in, in Sydney house prices were falling because there was an increase in supply. There was a very large increase in supply of high density dwellings and, and prices of those dwellings, rents in those dwellings were falling and haven't really recovered well uh, even today. I came over here, analysed the market and we had a huge shortage of dwellings built up over years after a record migration boom, like a once in a generation migration boom. What's happened over the last year is we've pulled our borders up and we've stopped the flow of migrants. So our population growth has dropped dramatically. So if we look at what we've produced over the last year, the number of dwellings that we've actually put up, we've, we've increased um, the number of dwellings quite considerably and at the fastest rate in a number of decades, which is great. But the demand is, has eased off with the reduction in, in migration. So we've actually found ourselves in a situation for the first time in nearly a decade where we've actually produced more homes than we need in a one-year period. But there is a flow and there's a stock effect here. I'm talking about a flow. In one year, we've produced enough homes, more than enough homes for the population in that one year. But when you take into account the previous eight years, we'd built up a, uh, a massive shortage of dwellings. But this is a great place to find ourselves in, even though it was um, COVID-related rather than engineered by, you know, a, a surge in supply like we would like to see. So, But what we're expecting over the next couple of years is that it'll take some time for migrants to return, for our borders to reopen fully. And I think we've got another couple of years of, you know, really tackling the, the housing supply problem. And if everything goes according to our forecasts, which, you know, are very rubbery, we could see the housing market balance itself out by 2024, 2025. And what I mean by that is last year we had a shortage of 80,000 dwellings. We've eaten into that by 13,000 and we now estimate the shortage to be 67,000. This time next year, hopefully it's a shortage in the 50s. And the year after that, hopefully it's a shortage in the 20s. And we're getting closer and closer to, you know, balancing New Zealand's mar uh, housing market. But it is quite dependent on how many New Zealanders leave to go overseas, um, get back on the OEE track uh, when borders open, and particularly with Australia, now that the um, the Trans-Tasman bubble is there, people eyeing up 30 40% wage increases at the same time as rents being maybe 20 30% lower uh, in and around the CBDs of Sydney Melbourne and Brisbane. And then, of course, we don't quite know how many New Zealanders may come back to New Zealand from Europe, the United States, other parts of Asia. So you mentioned, you know, we're not quite sure uh, whether we'll have that surplus or deficit in two or three years' time because we don't really know how many people will go and how many people will come. No, the... the um 
the hardest thing about being an economist is you have to make a lot of assumptions. And everything you just said, we had to make an assumption around every one of those points. So how many Kiwis are leaving? We made an assumption on that. How many migrants will return and when will they be able to return? We've made an assumption on that. Um, so making all these very rubbery assumptions, we've we've got you know population growth starting to pick up next year as we believe the borders will open in, in some way. Uh, and then hopefully return to something more normal in 2023, and we and we just put migration flow back to a long-term normal type level of 30,000, which is well below the 90,000 peak we had uh, just recently. So yes, we're making a whole lot of assumptions here, but the point stands in that demand and supply dynamics drive housing markets or most markets. And when something is seen a surge in demand relative to supply, you get prices skyrocketing over a year, which is what we've seen. If we get ourselves in a situation where we manage to build more and more than we potentially need, um, we could see house prices not only flatten off but fall, but more importantly, rents rents can fall uh, in that in that environment. And the Australian example is a great one, and I don't think it's something that we should be scared of. There's nothing wrong with rents falling, and there's nothing wrong with the pro- average prices easing. That will be interesting, though, how investors see this. They've had the government stand up and say, you know, we'd quite like you not to be quite so buy friendly uh, in this market, not uh, jump in so hard. And that's why the government has said we're not going to allow you to deduct our interest as a taxable expense. But I sense from what I'm hearing from the auction rooms and uh, from what we've heard uh, is going on with mortgage brokers that investors uh, have pulled back a bit, but they're not completely storming the exits, worried about an oversupply of housing and um, some sort of collapse in prices. Many are just holding on and saying, okay, uh, I'm I like the, the the capital gains I've got out of my home. I've still got someone living in it who's paying me rent, even though my inability to claim the interest as tax means in theory I'm not going to be able to take home quite so much cash. You're not seeing a rush to the exits, and I, I think in part because there is still this awareness that we just don't have enough houses. No, I think I think it's interesting just to take a think in our own minds, what do you think an investor is? What do you think of as a housing investor? And I think most of us would sit there and say, oh, it's some rich uh, individual who owns 5, 10, 15 properties. Well, actually, the vast majority of investors in New Zealand are mums and dads with one or two properties. So if you're one of those investors that we're thinking of with the 5, 10, 15 properties and they're all heavily leveraged and interest deductibility is a big thing for you, then this announcement from the government, these changes will have a big impact. And there are private portfolios out there with 50, 60 properties in them, which is uh, which is insane. But most of New Zealanders in that investor camp have one or two. Now you've taken interest deductibility away, so that will add a bit of a cost uh, in an after-tax sense, but you've probably been in that property for, a, for a, a fair amount of time. You've owned it for a fair amount of time. It's doing well. It's paying itself off. It's part of your retirement plan. You're not going to sell it on the back of what the government has announced. 
particularly with interest rates low, you're probably still making a profit out of it. Uh, and just uh, looking at now we have the Reserve Bank in the next week making decisions about uh, whether it should um, restrict interest-only lending, particularly to landlords. And we know that more than half of the lending to landlords is interest-only and about a third of the overall uh, new mortgage lending is done with interest-only loans, and um, although not all to landlords. And uh, there's also the prospects of some sort of debt-to-income multiple control, although the government's not that keen on it, and and a suggestion of a change in the capital weightings for uh, banks so that they're perhaps a little less keen to lend to rental property investors and a bit keener to lend to um, other types of borrowers, be it in business or in, in owner-occupied housing. Yeah, I, I like the idea of the central bank becoming more surgical with bank capital requirements. Uh, if we woke up, you know, in a month's time after this FSR and we found that banks must hold more capital against investor loans and more so against interest-only loans, as they did in Australia a few years back, you would find that the interest rate on those loans would be increased overnight. And price is the signal that we need to drive here. You would find a bunch of investors that would suddenly take themselves off interest only because they would not want to pay that extra 50 basis points or maybe a full percent on a mortgage rate just to have that privilege of being on interest only. Uh, and those that stayed on there, well, they they pay the price to to um, to be on interest only. Because l- let's get this one thing clear: interest only loans are risky because you're not paying off the principal. In twenty years' time, you wake up with the exact same size mortgage as what you started. Whereas you know principal and interest, you're running that principal down and you're getting safer every year. So there is a big difference. Now, investors are also riskier than normal owner-occupiers. In the next recession, investors are more likely to sell than an owner-occupier is, and that's just what we've seen in in previous recessions. So, yes, they are slightly riskier, but it's the interest-only loans that are uh, the riskiest. Could you explain for our listeners, you know, how the bank lending departments and the managers think about this in relation to how the Reserve Bank tells them what to do or what not to do. Because my impression in the past is that for the big four banks, they essentially did their own capital modelling based on their own uh, previous results and what they saw as their risks and set their own capital levels and um, basically told the Reserve Bank afterwards. And as we've discovered uh, since since that, some of them accidentally (laughs) got their capital wrong. But what are we seeing the Reserve Bank doing? Because they've they've had another look at how they think about you know telling the banks what capital to hold. How was it done in the past, and and how will it be done in the future? Well, ba- banks will be asked to hold more capital regardless, um, and and that that is taking place, and we are taking that into account that we have to uh, accumulate more capital. Um, we've come quite a fair way or, already. On, on the models, look, I, I think we should all be on the RBNZ standardised model, right? Even playing field. 
But that hasn't been the way in the past. You've seen the big four Australian-owned banks having their own uh, dynamic models, much fancier models, you know, big shiny lights and um, racing stripes on the side. And then um, the smaller <laughs> the smaller banks, the locally-owned banks, um, being essentially directed by the Reserve Bank to hold certain amounts of capital for certain types of loans, much more of a blunt instrument. Just to step back a bit from that, uh, Jared. What are you seeing out there in the world of interest rates, um, wholesale interest rates, and how is that translating through to the sort of mortgage rates that people are paying? And and whether, you know, we're on the verge of some sharp increase of interest rates or whether we're flat from here or or, or what? Yeah, good question. And, and, it's, and it's interesting. We, we've had a, a really uh, strong run in financial markets over the last six months. So most of your listeners will be aware that equity uh, markets have, have taken off globally. Um, they're up, you know, 80%, 90% since the lows of COVID last year. Valuations look a little stretched in parts, but, you know, the earnings seasons that we've just gone through in the US, Google and others coming out with stellar profits, Some, I think 80% of US firms have either just met expectations or beaten expectations. And expectations, in my opinion, were quite punchy to start with. So equity markets are on a tear and doing well. And that's on the back of the stimulus that we've seen globally from governments and central banks. Lots of money out there and finding home. With regards to interest rate markets, interest rates have also lifted. So if you think of a New Zealand 10-year bond, the interest rate on that fell to a record low of just 44 basis points, so not even half a percent, and we've now risen back up to about 1.6%. So that's a massive move for a wholesale interest rate in just a few months, and that has moved in lockstep with US uh, and Australian and other interest rates around the world. So what what we're seeing is longer-term interest rates rising by more than short-term, so curves are steepening. And this is good. This this is a reflection of investors pricing in greater growth and inflation expectations than what they had six months ago. So vaccines, stimulus, all of this working its right way into financial markets and financial markets pricing in more growth, inflation uh, in interest rates. Short-term interest rates have remained relatively pegged to expectations of central banks' cash rates. So what you've seen in New Zealand is the one-year rate hasn't moved a great deal. The two-year rate's up a bit. Uh, Five-year rate's moved up quite a bit, and the 10-year rate's taken off. So the curve has steepened, and what has that meant for mortgage rates, for example? Because there's been a bit of action in the last couple of weeks. Yeah, we've seen a few of the banks um, actually start to pass that on, and it took a long time because uh, a lot of this was happening last year. Uh, it's just continued to happen this year, and we've seen that being passed on to mortgage rates. So, you know, three-year, four-year, five-year mortgage rates have lifted. So five-year mortgage rates are up by more than three-year mortgage rates. But the banks have, have kept one- and two-year rates, um, if not the same, they've actually lowered them uh, in the process. So they've steepened the mortgage rate curve offered to um, their customers. And that is a reflection of what we just talked about. The Reserve Bank of New Zealand is not going to do anything in the next year, so the one-year rate's not going to do a, a, a heck of a lot. 
We are thinking that the central bank may look to normalise policy late next year. So, you know, that three-year rate is justified in, in going higher and the two years just drifted basically, uh, you know, higher by, by a small amount. And everyone's personal situation is different about whether they go short and uh, go for the cheapest rate or whether they think they can um, beat the market and uh, essentially lock in for four or five years and uh, expect that uh, in five years' time the short-term interest rates will be much higher than that rate they locked in. Um, How do you advise or how do you talk about this with people who are are thinking – Gee, that five-year rate looks relatively low. Surely, it's going to the interest rates are going to explode. How do you talk to people about that? It's a it's a personal choice. At, at the end of the day, I mean, now that those curves have steepened up, it, it obviously costs you more to go out to a five-year than it is to just lock it in for one year. But one thing I I like to say, and one thing I do personally, is I don't put all my mortgage on on one rate. I, I quite like chopping it up, uh, you know, put some of it on one year, some of it on two years, some of it on three year. Sometimes diversification is a good thing in investing and therefore sometimes it's a good idea in, in borrowing as well. Absolutely. Spread spread the risk out, the curve. Um, and then you do have something rolling off every year should you, you know, want to pay some down at a, at a faster rate as well. Because let, let's face it, variable rates are too high in New Zealand and, you know, I would encourage everyone to get off a variable rate as soon as possible. It's just, it's too high compared to like a one-year fixed rate. Yes. Jared Kerr from Kiwi Bank, the chief economist there, thank you very much for um, talking about uh, what we're going to see in the next couple of weeks with the Reserve Bank and interest rates and how the markets reacted to the big announcement from the government on tax deductibility, uh, how we're thinking about that. Fantastic to have you in. Thank you, Jared Kerr. Thank you. Well, there we have it. Inside and out, the housing market, the mortgage market and how banks work. I'd like to thank Carmen Vichlich from Velocity Global, Jared Kerr from Kiwi Bank, and of course, thanks to Kiwi Bank, who are producing this podcast, When the Facts Change, in partnership with the spinoff. And remember, subscribe so you don't miss an episode every week of When the Facts Change. When the Facts Change was brought to you by the Spinoff Podcast Network, together with Kiwi Bank. Visit kiwibank.co.nz to find out how KiwiBank are making Kiwi better off. Are you making the most of your KiwiSaver investment? Generate is an award-winning KiwiSaver provider with a track record of strong long-term performance. Making a smart decision now could add tens of thousands of dollars by the time you reach retirement. Book a no-obligation chat with a Generate KiwiSaver advisor today at generatekiwisaver.co.nz slash advice. A copy of the product disclosure statement is available at generatekiwisaver.co.nz. The issuer of the scheme is Generate Investment Management Limited, and of course, past performance does not guarantee future returns. The Spin Off Podcast Network.